Some topics in this podcast series deal with sensitive subject matter that may not be suitable for all listeners. The National Principles for Child Safe Organisations reflects 10 child safe standards recommended by the Royal Commission into Institutional Responses to Child Sexual Abuse. These principles aim to provide Australia with a nationally consistent approach to creating organisational cultures that foster child safety and well-being. They have a broader scope that goes beyond child sexual abuse to cover other forms of potential harm to children and young people. This podcast series, brought to you by ComplySpace and Brave Hearts, unpacks each of the 10 principles, their implications and ways to apply them. In this episode, we explore Principle 4. Equity is upheld and diverse needs respected in policy and practice. Hi everyone, I'm Deborah Defina, Principal Consultant in Child Protection at ComplySpace. And I'm Matt Sinclair, the National Manager of Child Protection Training at Braveheart. You're listening to our series of podcasts around the national principles for child safe organisations and today we're talking about principle number four, equity and diversity. And our guest today is Kelly Humphrey. Um, Kelly is a proud Gamilaroi woman and an experienced educator, coach and diversity consultant. Welcome Kelly. Thanks for having me team. Kelly, do you want to tell us a little bit more about your background and about um, what you're doing? I would love to. Thanks Deb. As you mentioned, I am a proud Gamilaroi woman. I have been an educator for the past 14 years and through my journey as an educator, I've held roles of classroom teacher, assistant principal, principal and various roles in uh, education systems. And in 2018, I had the opportunity to conduct some research through the Brother John Taylor Fellowship as a part of New South Wales Catholic School. And I got to dive a little bit deeper into this notion of diversity as I explored diversity in educational leadership. This fellowship actually allowed me to travel across the United States and the UK. And instead of looking at what other education systems were doing around the world, I was fortunate to speak with Fortune 500 companies that were leading the way with diversity and inclusion in their workplaces and building practices for diverse leadership. And as a result of that uh, research, I'm now currently working with organisations on their leadership development, cultural change and diversity practices. And what that looks like is helping companies to critically assess their current practices in in an organisational cultural sense um, with a specific focus on diversity and inclusion processes, organisational cultural change um, and building their leadership capacity. But Deb and Matt, my best job of all is I am the mum of two beautiful girls uh, and they teach me more about my diverse cultural needs and leadership than uh, anyone in the world. That's <laughs> fantastic. Yeah. I've got to say your level of experience is just perfect for this podcast um, because it's about, um, as Matt said, principle four, which is about equity and diversity. And the principal's title is Equity is Upheld and Diverse Needs are Respected in Policy and Practice. One of the main principles behind this is the idea of cultural safety. Um, Kelly, can you talk a little bit about cultural safety and what what that is and what it means? 
Yes, I'd love to. I, I think a great place to start when we start to explore this notion of cultural safety is I know a lot of organisations at the moment are working with the research of Amy Edmondson, which is about psychological safety. And psychological safety in an organisation means that our staff are able to show up and be one's true self without fear of negative consequences or self-image status or repercussions for raising any concerns in the workplace. And then there's this notion of cultural respect and that's defined as the recognition, protection and continued advancement of inherent rights of cultures and traditions of a particular culture. So I feel when we merge psychological safety and cultural respect, we can get a true meaning for what cultural safety is. And for me, I think where that's defined as an environment that is safe for people where there is no challenge or denial of their identity, of who they are or what they need. It's about respect, a shared meaning, shared knowledges, shared experiences of learning, living and working together with dignity and truly respecting every individual. Mm. So that that's, goes well beyond cultural awareness, doesn't it? Oh, my word. I think... Um, when we start this notion of, when we start to talk about cultural safety, a lot of organisations and systems will say we are culturally aware and that's just the starting point in the game. Um, it's not actually the end point. The end point is true cultural safety in our organisations. Um, cultural awareness is about understanding different cultures but cultural safety is more about creating a space where everyone can examine their own cultural identities and attitudes and be open-minded and flexible in our attitudes towards pe people from different cultures other than our own. Mm. Can, I, can I just ask where, like, where diversity fits in there too? So why is it important for an organisation to be diverse and to respect diverse needs as part of cultural safety? Yeah, I, I once had a gentleman tell me, you know, everyone needs to be in the canoe to help it paddle upstream. And I think that's very true when it comes to having a diverse workforce or diverse representation in, in any aspect of examining policy or procedure in an organisation. The more people we have with different perspectives around the table, we create this uh, process of cognitive diversity, which brings in avenues that we might not actually think are important, but for people in our community, they truly are. And unless they're in that canoe, unless they're at the table, uh, you know, we don't really get an authentic uh, solving of that problem. Mm. Yeah, how interesting. But I guess for me, it's, that's a great way to look at cultural safety and it's really kind of expanded my understanding of it. The link between being cultural safe for an organisation and then being child safe, why is being culturally safe for, say, a school important for child safety? Yeah, that's a really great question, Matt. Cultural safety demands actions that recognise and respect and nurture the unique cultural identity of a student and safely meets their, meets their expectations and their rights. So for a school to work from um, a cultural safe perspective, we are clear and value-free and open and respectful in our communication. We have uh, trust between our staff and students and our staff and community. 
we are really assessing our stereotypical barriers. We've recognised what they are and we're trying really hard to avoid them. And everybody is in this two-way dialogue, this feedback loop, which is continuous and the conversation is shared in a, in a safe way. Cultural safety for students um, and, and children in particular opens the doors for a lot of positives um, when we look at that in a school setting because we know the value of parent involvement in education for best educational outcomes. And as soon as we, we have an environment that is culturally safe, our parents feel welcome, our carers feel welcome, our community feels welcome, and our children benefit um, from that openness. Mm. So, so how can an organisation figure out if it's culturally safe um, for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children, or for that matter, for children from any um, diverse cultures? Yeah, that's a great question too, Deb. There's not a one-size-fits-all approach, um, and I think that's really that's a key to remember when we're talking about creating organisations that are culturally safe for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities, because every Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander community has its differences, um, and to blanket that approach would be um, destructive, I guess. Mm. So it's about finding out what exists in each of those communities. A culturally safe organisation for Aboriginal people would have some general tones. So if we make them generalised statements, you know, we could say our organisation is safe for our staff, our students, our, our community members. We are well connected with our local community, our Aboriginal community or a community of a different cultural background. We respond to the identified needs of that community. We are accessible to that community uh, and I really think that's a key to being accessible. Uh, for a long time, um, we've always expected people to come to us and we know that doesn't work for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities. Sometimes we need our schools and our organisations to step outside their four walls, out past the school gate and actually be present in, in communities. So I think that's a really key one. And when we start to do that, we can actually be starting to work in this culturally safe way. So what does that look like for a school? So how might um, the, the leadership of the school or somebody who's really quite passionate about this uh, equity and diversity, how might they go out and make those connections to community? Yeah. It'd be, it sounds really easy, doesn't it? Yeah. But actually it's really quite challenging. Send a text. Yeah. yeah. Um, it would be fantastic if we all were such a well-connected um, community and we all knew everybody, but unfortunately that's not the reality of a, of a lot of um, the places in which we live. So I would encourage any leader to ask their organisational leadership or their system leadership around who is the best person to help make those connections. Asking the question is the biggest thing. Who can help me with this? And our leaders being um, on the forefront, I guess, of asking our parents of carers or mm. carers of um, diverse students, saying, this is what we'd like to do. Could you help us or do you know someone who could help us with this is a, is a, a wonderful way to go about that. Mm. Um, also, I think I really love the work of Dr. Scott Livingston. Uh, he talks about being culturally intelligent. And I think this is where it builds uh, for leaders. So he has four quadrants to being culturally intelligent in your leadership practice. Um, and the first one is cultural intelligence drive. And this is about your level of interest, 
your motivation to persevere through cross-cultural interactions. And this point is very critical. If we don't have the drive or the motivation to want to engage outside those four walls, then everything else won't be so successful. Mm. The second quadrant Dr Livingston talks about is cultural intelligence knowledge. So this is our understanding of these cultural issues and the way in which we approach things, um, for example, like, like privilege in our communities. Mm. And where do we go to actually find out more information? Who can help us learn more in that space? So cultural intelligence knowledge is the second quarter. The third one is about cultural intelligence strategy. So this is the application, your capability to apply your drive and your knowledge to develop effective strategies in your organisation to build and to create those connections. And the fourth one is actions and behaviour, cultural intelligence, actions and behaviour. So how do we actually respond and what behaviour change do we see as a result of putting all those three uh, quadrants in action? Mm -hmm. And I think when we start to challenge our leaders to work in this culturally intelligent way, we have a real authentic way of creating culturally safe workplaces, organisations and schools. And I have a bit of a, an example of that in action, if you'd like to hear about oh, that. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, okay. So um, I, I've been fortunate to know uh, many principals in their journeys before, and one in particular was a lady who uh, was very new to her schooling community, her area, um, and she had spent time overseas in, in culturally diverse places. So she knew that she wanted to come back and learn about the local community in which she was living. And she reached out and said, how do I connect? Can you make some introductions? So her drive, that cultural intelligence drive was there because of her past experience and she had seen the benefit of engaging with the community. Her cultural knowledge was probably limited at this point um, because she was new to the community but she was keen to learn. So that's the reaching out. She got in contact and we were able to hook her up with a couple of organisations and she sat down and she talked openly and honestly and listened authentically to the needs of that community around what the school could do better to make them feel more welcome. She came back and she talked about this with the staff and this is where cultural intelligence strategy comes into play. The staff had made a decision that they wanted to make sure that every cultural, cultural community in their school was, felt welcome when they, yeah. when they stepped foot in the door. And so they decided that as a result of that, their action would be that they are going to have this wall that says welcome or hello in every language that's reflected within their school. Fantastic. Amazing strategy, right? But it didn't mm -hmm. just stop there. This principal uh, then decided, well, that's one behaviour we can see, that's an action we can see, but how do we actually ensure that that is welcoming? Because it's one thing to have words on the wall. Mm. But what she did was invited community in and as a part of a staff meeting, she had her staff rotate through language centres and the community taught the staff how to say those words, how to uh, actually pronounce them, articulate them. Um, so when they would walk through the door, you would see the staff trying to say hello in, in, a, in Sudanese, for, for instance, mm. and then say to the family, did I say it right? And the family would say, yes, you did, great try. Or they would, they would articulate back how they could sharpen uh, that language process a little bit. So mm. that's a great example of cultural intelligence in action and driven from that leadership level. Mm. And what about the staff? So you've got 
in some organisations, you might not have the leaders who are like that fantastic principal. What can staff do to help create this cultural change and to create some cultural safety within their, within their school? Yeah, that's a really great question too because it doesn't always rely on leaders, right, to make this movement. They don't underestimate the power of one person to change the world. Um, so I think anyone with an interest in ensuring the best for their for their students or for their clients, um, they can work through that cultural intelligence model themselves. But also raising the consciousness within the cohort of their workers is a really important thing to do. We talk a little bit about um, unconscious bias or being aware of our biases and it only takes one person to call that consciousness um, to light in, in a meeting or in a conversation for people to think differently around things. So I think it's really important that our staff, if they feel the need to raise concerns, to be on the forefront of um, producing culturally safe organisations or a culturally safe classroom, that they are the people who, who raise that concern and have that conversation. Mm. And what training do you think staff and volunteers might need to help them um, create that cultural safety and help um, respond to children from a variety of different cultures? Yeah. Look, there is lots of training out there. I think if you even just did a Google search for cultural awareness training, you get a number of yeah. organisations. And for educators, you know, it's a great place to start cultural awareness training. It's not cultural safety, but it is the platform to learn how to be cultural, culturally safe. And the great thing about cultural awareness training uh, for teachers or schools in particular is that they're linked to the Australian Professional Teacher Standards 1.4 and 2.4, so it's kind of a win-win. You get this <laughs> opportunity to learn, but you also get to uh, work towards your professional uh, capability in meeting those standards. The other thing I'd encourage listeners to do is you know, let's explore what's happening in your local communities because there is a number of authentic immersion experiences in local communities and seek those out. There are so many people who are willing to share their culture, uh, willing to share their understanding of their place, uh, but they just need someone to ask and I think that's, in, that's the important thing. Mm. Mm. Um, and Sorry, the, the only other thing I was going to ask was one of the other um, things that might demonstrate that this principle is being implemented is that, and in fact I think it's one of the action areas that the, the um, Human Rights Commission has um, articulated, is this idea of having um, child-friendly material in accessible formats and accessible languages. If you've got a culturally diverse school, how do you go about doing that? Yeah, it's... It's a wonderful um, part of this principle, I think, to provide this kind of material. And unfortunately, sometimes our schools and, and systems are not going to be the expert in this area. So it is about finding those people in the community or in Australia who can help us, those organisations who work with uh, specific cultural groups, who can help us to translate, to, to make that documentation appropriate, um, to remove any stigmas around raising concerns for different cultural groups. Uh, I think the the hardest one of the hardest things we're asking people to do is step outside their four walls and start seeking um, the supports from outside mm -hmm. of uh, our schools or organisations. Mm -hmm. But it is one of the key elements to ensuring we get this right and that we do have useful documentation for families um, who who need this kind of support, who yeah. should have this support. Yeah. 
And in fact, that goes back to that idea that we were talking about of having a diverse workforce too, doesn't it? Because in some cases, you might actually have that expertise in-house, oh. and especially if you've got your diverse workforce. Yes, my word. And, you know, Deb, there's a growing body of evidence that suggests um, when we do have diversity in our staff, in our teachers in particular, sorry to go from a school sense again, but from our teachers' point of view, we actually see an increased um, academic achievement of our students. Mm -hmm. We see less absenteeism and we see the probability of uh, completing high school as a result of having teachers who are demographically alike um, to students. And I think that really links in with the government's priorities around closing the gap, especially in education, because we are trying really hard to increase literacy and numeracy results mm -hmm. and to make sure we get as many Year 12 graduates for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander students. So I think you're right that diverse staff can never be discounted. And sometimes they are the people to ask and they just never have been. Yes, yeah. that's right. Your staff could be your connection to the community that, and, and the breaking down of those four walls that you're looking for and they're, they're right there. That's it. Right at your fingertips. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. And it's not always just about the teachers or the, or the actual staff who are paid as well. And one of the other ways a school could do this perhaps is by having volunteers come in or who are from diverse communities. So it, there's a number of ways that a school might be able to do this. Yes, you're exactly correct. Um, one of the schools that I've worked with in the past have a, a fantastic Harmony Day uh, celebration and this is driven by the students and the pride that you see on these students' face when they walk into school in traditional dress, they're sharing their culture, mm. they've had their mums, their grandmas, uh, all of their community members cooking up a feast the night before mm. and coming in and helping to serve uh, food to that community. It's a really great way of engaging that wider community and the pride that, that can, those cultural groups feel in days like that um, can open that conversation, Deb, around, you know, we want to make sure that we're supporting you the best way we can. What is it that mm. we can do differently mm. uh, to achieve that? Mm. And it's funny, not, not, not to move too far off the topic of cultural safety, but it, it expands to the idea of disability as well, doesn't it? I read a, um, an article a while back about a school that engaged two volunteers with Down syndrome to participate in art classes with their students. Mm -hmm. And that, that has that exact same um, feel to it, doesn't it? It certainly does. And I, again, with disability, you know, the people who can best share the experience of what life is like is those people with that lived experience. Um, so I, I do feel like it. it Again, it's one of the hardest things to do, but one of the simplest and easiest things to do is just ask the question and find the people who can give the answer that will help address the need you're, you're trying to solve. Yes. Oh, that's fantastic. And I think that's a great note to end on. Unless, Is there anything else that you would like us to add or you'd like to discuss? Oh, we could talk all day around this. <laughs> I'll take you up for hours. But I guess I think um, what I'd like to to get across today is for systems and organisations to, to really consider strategically creating a vision for diversity within within their organisations. Um, and that, that means you have to start this, this notion of focusing on succession planning. How are we going to build that workforce into the future? And really starting to scrutinise our workforce data and looking at, well, what, what, is our, what is our cultural makeup and how can we start to 
draw in those groups that we know our students are coming from um, to really benefit those, those things we've talked about before about increasing academic engagement, parent involvement um, and retention. And let's have that conversation in our organisations about unconscious bias. Let's, let's raise that in the areas of recruitment, retention and promotion. Because if we work collaboratively uh, on all of these things with organisations across the board, our students and our children in our communities are the people who will benefit in the future. Mm. Fantastic. Thank you. That's exactly right. It's equity and diversity. It's just like child safety. It needs to filter through everything, everything. that we do. Yeah. Yeah. Kelly, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been an absolute pleasure. You've, I've learned so much just listening to you speak. So thank you for sharing your wisdom. Oh, thank you for having me and thanks for a great initiative. Oh, thanks again. <laughs>